0: wait wait we'll close our eyes i'll do rock paper scissors shoot and we'll kind of wait a second and then we'll open our eyes
1: all right cool all right close your eyes all right they're closed.
0: yes all right
1: rock rock paper paper, scissors shoot ah you crushed my scissors (laughs) you want to know why i did this because i knew i know you read you whatever wait does that mean i go first i don't know you won you get to pick well, fu- that doesn't help <laughs> <laughs> that puts us right back into square one megan you you won you get to go first God damn it all right okay fine let's let's introduce ourselves. <laughs>
0: Welcome to another episode of My Favorite Feminist. My name is Megan, and I'm here with my co-host, Milana.
1: Hey, kids. Today, we're going to learn about an American artist who was a Chicago imagist, whatever, whatever that means. I can't wait to hear about that.
0: Eh, it's just some art. Who cares?
1: And also, a female 1960s sexologist.
0: How, is, how have you not made up your profession yet?
1: I... No, I was so upset when I read it. I was like, holy shit. I went the wrong direction. I'm I'm so upset with myself. I'm furious because instead of becoming a sexologist, I got a journalism degree. I'm pissed.
0: Okay, if we're ever in a time machine together, we're never going to America in the 1960s because your ass is going to wander off. I'm going to have to come forward without you. And you're going to be about to retire as a very distinguished American sexologist (laughs) who has enjoyed a very robust and (laughs) firm (laughs) decades-long career.
1: (laughs) Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about sex. I don't know. That that might be a copyright issue. Was it you and and me? I don't don't know.
0: Uh, Okay. Well, shit. Tell me about your sexologist.
1: Yo! Okay, so unfortunately, she was a product of her time, which again I have to come to terms with. Everyone we gonna we're gonna do is a human being and is very flawed. And I just have to be okay. I have to be okay.
0: It's okay to not be okay.
1: Good news is that she actually this is the this is a weird part. She didn't actually earn a degree in sexology.
0: <gasps> that. Fraud! That uh, charlatan.
1: She didn't earn a degree in anything. Or no, she did in singing. So there's still hope for me. I think
0: whatever you put your heart to. Okay. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's all about the experience. And um, I mean, you're the most qualified person I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can put me down for a job recommendation. <laughs> I'm call and be like, "How oh, do you know Milana?" Like, oh, I know Milana. Oh, the sexologist position. Yeah, did she tell you about the one time she pulled a Marilyn Manson? Can you never bring that up again? <laughs> be like, "Oh, you don't know what that term is." Well, sit down. <laughs> the stories I have to tell. <laughs>
1: that is, we officially can never bring up the Marilyn Manson ever On again for the rest night of the
0: years ago, <laughs> after a Marilyn Manson concert. Who is there standing as the crowd departed <laughs> but a Frenchman, but not any Frenchman, a French model. I'm dead. In amazement, I watched this meal and I was like, hold my beer. <laughs> Sauntered up to this man. Oh, no. I look, not 30 seconds on Instagram, on my phone, awkwardly killing time as I am now alone, and look up. And her and the Frenchman are, well,
1: kissing.
0: (laughs) Uh, Boys and girls, it's pulling Marilyn Manson.
1: (laughs) I mean, that was record time.
0: Yeah, T minus like fucking two minutes. Oh, like your tongue was in his in his face.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was it was was, we we were drunk. I it's fine. I don't
0: do that it's anymore, fine. guys. And uh, then we left. And um, we went back home to South where We ate a fucking cheesesteak, and it was snowy, and it was lovely, and we couldn't fucking catch a taxi to save our lives. Nope.
1: <laughs> um, but it was a fun journey back home. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, now that we've lamented how I did not become a sexologist.
0: I mean, you still could. You still could become a sexologist. So how did this woman who had no formal qualifications... <laughs> <laughs> sexologist <laughs> become a sexologist i'm just i'm sorry i just this conjures up like kind of austin powers like sexy robot you know <laughs> shooting bullets out of their titties kind of imagery for me
1: oh my god i've actually been watching uh the austin power series so that was a that's, See? that's fresh in my See? mind <laughs>
0: uh so okay what's this woman's name can you let's start there her name was
1: Virginia Johnson. I, I think you would find that she and I have some things in common.
0: I would have never guessed. <laughs> I'm going to just drink my tea over here.
1: <laughs> uh, she uh, she had like a commanding presence. She was very outgoing. She knew what she wanted. She got what she wanted. And if she didn't like her situation, she would change it. Uh, usually there was one situation where she kind of like rode because the benefits outweighed the cons for her but I'm not sure if I would have done the same thing but we're going to continue so she was born Virginia Eshelman in 1925 in Springfield Missouri her mom's name was Edna and her dad's name was Herschel she, like, went through school and she enrolled herself at Drury College at the age of 16. So that was, like, the, the hometown college where she was from. Dropped out soon after and ended up working at the Missouri State Insurance Office. So during World War II, she eventually returned to school after four years and enrolled in the University of Missouri as well as the Kansas City Conservatory of Music. She was going to be a band singer. And she ended up singing country for a radio station in Springfield under the name Virginia Gibson. And she would also sing at Fort Leonard for, like, enlisted soldiers, because it was around World War II, all that good stuff. So fast forward, and she's 22. She's a singer, and she marries a lawyer in his 40s. So I checked multiple sources. No one knows his name. And this is probably because she divorced him after, like, a year.
0: Okay. Do you think, you know, she was maybe in it for... The financial security?
1: Oh, I'm sure. So afterwards, she moves to St. Louis. She's still singing, and she meets this guy named George Johnson. He was also a musician. And they got married in 1950 and had two children. This marriage lasted about six years.
0: Okay. I mean, that's a significant improvement compared to the first one.
1: Exactly, right? I'm proud of her. Uh, So 1956, she's 32. She's taking care of two children. She's divorced twice. And she's like, well, fuck. I need a career. So, her plan was to get a job at Washington University, enroll in school there, so her tuition would be like cut because she was working for them. Yeah. uh, And then get like a sociology degree. She lands a job as a research assistant for a Dr. William Masters in the school's Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So, it's 1957. She's got this really normal secretary position, sets up appointments, makes coffee, files claims, just like menial shit. And she goes about her days like normal, but something is eating away at her. Uh, There's actually research that the doctor's doing that she kind of knows is happening, but she doesn't know anything about. And he won't let her in on it.
0: Okay.
1: In fact, everyone on campus knew something was going on in these labs. But nobody really knew the exact details.
0: Okay, and this is like mid-1950s?
1: Yeah, wait for it. So, over time, she pokes around... She's curious. And she finally finds out. The doctor, Dr. Masters, was paying prostitutes to have sex with men in his lab to study the human body's physiological responses to sexual stimuli.
0: I just, there's so much happening right now. (laughs) I just imagine, like, the silent room of, like, head honchos, like, behind, like, one big table with, like, big, like, Windows behind them with the big, heavy red curtains drawn, and like sitting in front of there in this shitty chair is like the professor, and they each have like a copy of like his very analytical, you know, scientific research up to that point, titled, you know, researching human stimuli within auto or you know partner partner arousal. And the main guy's just like pinching it and was like, "Steve, you do realize we get federal funded grants?" Like I just imagine them being like, "What the fuck." <laughs> <laughs> How the uh, fuck are we gonna explain this shit?
1: I mean, yeah, that's essentially where it's headed. So give me a second.
0: <laughs> like that's gonna be so awkward when he has to break the news and be like, "Yeah, so I've been using taxpayer dollars for this." <laughs> be like, I'm sorry, what?
1: You wanna you wanna hear more?
0: Go, yeah, no, I'm waiting. I'm yeah. <laughs> I just like shit's gonna hit the fan and. I'm so curious.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> so Virginia finds out, but she doesn't bring it up. She just like continues on with her mark, like her work.
0: It'd be great if like she blackmailed him. I'm like, you know, I've been here like three months, and I feel like I could use really use a raise. I mean, like, you've been here like three months. Yeah, I know. It's just I've been talking to some of your lady friends you've had in. I
1: wish. <laughs> Uh, but, like, she just keeps going. I guess she just didn't want to lose her job. She didn't want to, like, lose the, the way to put food on the table for her kids. So she did yeah. her own thing. But during the research, the hired prostitutes were saying things to the doctor that, like, blew his mind. You want to know what it was that they were saying, Megan, that blew his mind?
0: Oh, my God. Please tell us. <laughs>
1: Very simply put.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, aside from the fact that no, yours is the biggest, I swear. <laughs> it's a great girth. I've never seen anything like it before. Pro- I've seen a lot. No, really I have Hey Christina, Christina, get over here. Take a look. Oh my god. Isn't that the biggest uh, you've seen? Yeah. All
1: uh, right, uh, all right, all right, all right, okay. So <laughs> the big the big reveal for the doctor, the thing that blew his mind was that Women fake orgasms. Holy
0: fuck. <laughs> 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 oh God. I, I mean what's next? They're gonna want us to play with their clits too? <laughs> what is this shit?
1: <laughs> oh my god. Oh my- So, obviously, at this point, (laughs) he was having a really hard time processing this information. So, he realized that he needed a female perspective, not just his perspective. And it just so happened that he had a female secretary, and he just wanted to bring her in on the fun.
0: I mean, shit, girls gotta get that raise one way or another. (laughs) (laughs) She's got two mouths to feed
1: and put oh herself God. through school. Oh, my God.
0: Gotta get that money.
1: Oh, Jesus Christ. So he brings it up to her. And he's she's obviously like, yeah, I know what's happening. But she's interested. And he's like, look, I really need like a second person. Like He didn't come out and be like, I need you to fuck people. It wasn't like that. It was just kind of like, I'm going to need a woman's mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. That different perspective.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she's like, all right. And she actually approached the situation like a true professional. So she was instantly like in work mode. And Dr. Masters immediately started taking her under his wing. So he made sure she knew medical terminology, the ins and outs of the science of research, and the undeniable power of therapy. So she's getting a crash course. And what better yeah. way to really learn, like, but on the job. Honestly, like you can be studying psychology and theory all day long, but you're not going to really know how to do anything until you're in the lab.
0: So, yeah, until you're immersed in it.
1: Right, 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 right. They continue, and they would hire prostitutes initially because they were part of a community that had an extensive knowledge of sex already, obviously. They were willing to take part in these studies, and they were comfortable enough to bang it out in the lab. Later on, the two would ask actual couples if they would be comfortable enough to be a part of the studies, and they ended up recruiting about 312 men and 382 women from the general public. Needless to say, this comes out, and the university wasn't happy about what was going on.
0: Oh, I bet they were pissed. (laughs) They're like, we don't even have a sex ed in here. (laughs) Birth control isn't even technically legal to (laughs) non-married women at this point. Like, what the (laughs) fuck? What are you doing? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> they stopped funding the research, and in 1964, Masters and Johnson started the Reproductive Biology Research Foundation. The foundation would go on to research contraception, infertility, and conception, but the big thing about this particular foundation was that it focused mainly on human sexuality. So it was through this foundation that Virginia and the doctor published most of their research, and Masters would make sure to give equal credit to Virginia on the title page. Oh, nice. Nice. Right? Yeah. No, it's, it's nice for a bit. Uh-oh. For a bit. Anyway, I mean, of course, it was the 1950s and 1960s, so this research was done in a cisgendered heteronormative mindset. They would eventually look into homosexuality in their later publications, but, I mean, it was obviously biased, and we'll get to that in a second. However, their research was more scientific than previous human sexuality research done by the biologist Alfred Kinsey, so the Kinsey scale. The work of Dr. Kinsey focused primarily on interviews about human sexuality down in the 1940s and 1950s. But their research was a little bit different because they involved some probes.
0: I mean, again, I figure if you're having sex for science, like, there might be some probes going on. There might be some little (laughs) sticky tabs, some heart rate monitors. Like, there's going to be cords attached to you.
1: So they measured the physiological responses to sexual stimulation in their subjects with a few methods: electrocardiography, uh, electroencephala. I don't even know what that is, but it involved probes and cameras. There's one that was intravaginal photography.
0: It's very niche. Yeah. For yeah. <laughs> type of <laughs> photography.
1: Yeah, just like oh, oh, there's there's one. There's one. Oh, it's getting faster now. Like, holy. Be like my
0: life's work has culminated in my scientific research and theorizing and my photographic skills right now, right here. <laughs> <laughs> Are we getting this? There's film in there, right? Yeah.
1: Their first book, The Human Sexual Response, which was published in 1966, mapped out the sequence of physiological and emotional changes that happened when you get busy there are apparently four parts excitement plateau orgasm and resolution which if you've ever had sex that all seems pretty obvious right
0: what's like resolution is that like him falling like the fuck asleep next to you
1: yeah something like, that. like you're just kind of like Ugh! ride that wave man ride it <laughs> a lot of the cycle was unknown to the general public at this time As well as the fact that all genders go through these phases, not just men. And then there was the idea that it is unlikely that the two partners would climax at the same time. So people tended to romanticize this idea, like, of course this happens, it has to be at the same time. And people would get frustrated if it didn't happen, but, like, come on, man. Different strokes for different folks. Just throwing that out there. Uh, and then the book also even introduced the idea of the refractory period for men. So the big thing there was that this publication introduced the idea of multiple orgasms in women to the general public. And people were like, what? What is happening? They can do it more than once <laughs>
0: <laughs> what's going on? The men go on them, witches! They're witches! <laughs> Blasphemy! Oh my god, okay.
1: Oh, oh! I don't think I said sorry, mom, yet. But sorry, mom.
0: <laughs> I mean, it's all a natural part of being human.
1: Oh man!
0: So this is the first book,
1: <laughs> <laughs> and they they did multiple publications. I'm not gonna hit on them all because they did so many of them, and they did an obscene amount of studies. But we're gonna hit a few, a few of them.
0: Some highlights. Some
1: highlights. So the second book, called Human Sexual Inadequacy, focused on the treatment of various sexual disorders as like a guide for clinicians. Inadequacy and like, we're talking like erectile dysfunction and why women can't get off a certain way and all that good stuff. So we're going to look more into their publications in a second. But right now, we're going to talk about her relationship with Masters. You ready? Yes. Okay. I'm not ready. It's the 1960s, and a white, heterosexual, cisgendered man is studying sexuality with a woman who is not only beautiful and charismatic, but is helping his career. So, he clearly starts becoming a scumbag. Oh no. Yep. Eventually, he starts arguing that he and she should start hooking up. His reasoning, <sighs> mm-hmm, his reasoning was that they were watching people have sex all day, and instead of maybe hooking up with some of the subjects they were watching and interfering with the data— They had to release pressure somehow, so they should use each other. But he was married. Uh Uh-huh. And they were not allowed to hook up at home or hotels. They were only allowed to hook
0: up at the lab. Yeah. No, that's not cool. Yeah. Yeah.
1: She went along with it. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So there's a quote, and this is where I get really sad. She says she was not comfortable with it particularly. I didn't want him at all, and had no interest in him. I was in an emergency situation, and the perks kept coming along. So those benefits.
0: Yeah, yeah. Her her insights and her research included on those, in those research papers. Her name on the title.
1: Yep. So my heart it breaks. I don't. I don't know. See, that's the situation. I'm not sure. Like, no, I'm. I'm very sure. If somebody came up to me and was like, "Hey, you can be, you know, on my title page. You don't need to have this degree, but you're gonna get this." This money and you're gonna get this recognition. I still, I I could not, I could not. But I'm not her. Yeah, so I not can't.
0: not everyone has the opportunity to walk away from. Yeah, the financial yeah, yeah, stability. Yeah. There's so many variables.
1: Yeah. So she keeps doing it. She dates other people though, and there was one specifically who was an international businessman, and it's actually been theorized that they were getting so serious that Masters was like eyeing it up and was like i don't like this i don't want to lose my research partner so he divorces his wife and asks virginia to marry him oh <gasps> oh shit we're we're thinking to like solidify the research partnership
0: yeah and to further his his mm-hmm. professional gains
1: mm-hmm. guess what she says
0: oh did she say uh
1: she said yeah
0: oh i
1: know so they marry in 1971 now he's got the research partner and the woman. And he's got two fairly successful books. So his head is starting to get kind of big. And he starts to lead the research to things that the institute that they started together and Virginia herself did not love. So two publications that made everybody practically embarrassed to work with him. You ready?
0: Oh, God. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. I'm ready. Yep. 1979. Homosexuality in perspective. Super controversial. Obviously But they observed homosexual couples making love in it, explored the sexual problems that could confront someone who was gay, and then also described the process of conversion therapy to heterosexuality by willing homosexual participants who wanted to be straight again.
0: Uh, that shit's still going on today.
1: Yep. Yep. So you know that those people that are doing it today are looking at Masters and Johnson, who are very prominent sexologists, and going, well, this said it could work. I'm like, no. No, honey. No. This was honestly just a man's, like, very shitty view of the world. But sure. So they wrote a lot of publications on homosexuality, uh, but most of the time it was just pro-heterosexuality. It was more just like... Us versus them, othering them, like... Yeah. Yeah. It's gross. Um, And then 1988, there was crisis, heterosexual behavior in the age of AIDS. And that one argued that the government was hiding information about AIDS being a very real threat. Like, HIV and AIDS is a real threat. Absolutely. That's why... It fucking
0: did. We talked about this in the episode with Gear LinkedIn. Yes. Yeah. How the fucking Reagan administration was like... (laughs) Oh, well, like AIDS, like right? That's right, where, like, right, right, right. gay people and or obviously not gay.
1: This is where it gets bad, though, is he's not giving out actual information. He's fearmongering. He said that it was very possible to contract AIDS from contact lenses and food that people who already had the virus.
0: oh, fuck me.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. <sighs> so that's where they were all like, "Um, what?"
0: Okay, so he's just adding fuel to the fire then. He's
1: really just like, I'm great at my job. This is amazing. And everybody's like, "Mm, no.
0: Yeah, but I mean, the worst thing is for a lot of people, that was validation. And that was confirmation of what they feared about. Oh, you're gay. I can't hold your hand. You can't be in my public school. Like, no, you're tainted.
1: It was not a good time for the two of them. And like, he had zero scientific support and she could not even defend him in public. I mean, why would she? Uh, but it everything that he published or he pushed for, like, put a wedge in between the two of them. And it was just like, I don't think I can be married to you. But also, before she finalized that, he was like, well, I'm going to leave you for my childhood sweetheart.
0: Uh, okay. All right. Yeah. So,
1: like, 1993, they divorce. But they're still kind of, like, trying to salvage their professional career,
0: Oh, yeah. Good luck with that.
1: Uh. Yeah. So they went about for like one year before the Reproductive Biology Research Foundation closed. Okay. And then Masters retires. So he like, there's like a quote where he's like, "Yeah, I got ahead of myself." <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. No fucking shit.
1: No. My God. Yeah. It was just like, really, dude. Really. Like you, you take advantage of your secretary. You, I, you just completely demonize an entire group of people. You fearmonger an entire like fucking disease that it's not. It's not. It's a serious fucking disease, dude. Like go fuck yourself. I just ah. ah. Alright, so Virginia, she's trying and. She I, – I got multiple sources telling me that she started something, but, like, I couldn't find it online, so I don't think it exists anymore. But several years after the closure of the Masters and Johnson Institute, she founded the Virginia Johnson Masters Learning Center in Creve Core, Missouri. Okay. And that particular facility provided print and audio materials to help persons affected by sexual dysfunction to overcome their issues. So she was still, like, trying to put forward in her life yeah. Uh, but I guess that one like went away. So she retires and she dies from col- like complications of several illnesses at the age of 88 in 2013. That same year, a TV series comes out. And it's called Masters of Sex, I believe. It's like three seasons long. It's based off of them, and I have yet to start watching it, but I'm going to. I thought it was a movie originally, but it was actually a full series, so if that's on Netflix or anything, I'm gonna get on that. Things got rocky, but a chunk of the research she was involved in was actually good, and that was the first couple years of what they were doing. They did this from, like, the 1960s to the 1990s, so there was a good three decades that something had good had to come out of it, right?
0: And it's such a a period where there's there's such a tremendous social shift in attitudes
1: right suddenly it wasn't awful to have these conversations like it's still a little weird but it wasn't awful and part of it was because of her so they helped thousands of men with like impotence and premature ejaculation and they helped thousands of women with difficulty in achieving orgasm like among other problems uh so freud You know, good old Sigmund Freud. He described two kinds of lady orgasms, and he called the vaginal orgasm good, but the clitoral orgasm bad.
0: I mean, there's already so many things problematic about Sigmund Freud.
1: Yeah. So let's just add that onto the list. That's (laughs) just a little
0: cherry on the shit icing. Yeah. The shit Sunday.
1: The research that Masters and Johnson did was like... Nah bro, you get off the way you need to. There's nothing wrong with you. So that was a big yay. Uh they practically established the field of modern sex therapy. So instead of just like giving drugs and going, like they actually put effort into like talking shit out. Weird, right? I mean,
0: that's that's big, and especially with such a, you know, intimate subject matter as that. I, right. I imagine it's it's it takes a lot to open up to, you know, a a stranger about it. a professional stranger, but still a stranger.
1: Yeah. Just like, Well, let me tell you what Joe did today that I didn't like, but the thing that Joe did today that I did like a lot. Multiple times.
0: I'd be like, That's great. Have you spoken to Joe about this? I'd be like, Well God no
1: <laughs> why would I say that? <laughs> I'd be like,
0: oh holy fuck. All right. uh,
1: so oh, one of my favorites. They let the men know not to panic. That the length of their dick is not directly correlated to the ability he has to truly satisfy his partner. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's that saying? It's the motion of the ocean.
0: Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yep. Just know what you're doing. Not hard guys.
0: Makes a difference.
1: Yep. And then, oh, this one's also very sweet. They even let the older people in the crowd know that they weren't too old to get it on. The dirty, crazy, awesome sex was not only possible for those over a certain age, but normal.
0: Yes. Yeah, and that's something that, you know, is still so persistent today. You get to a certain point.
1: They start making jokes about breaking hips and shit, and you're like, fuck you.
0: Yeah, I mean, you sh- watch out. Grandma will beat your ass with her Hitachi. <laughs> She knows how to use that thing. (laughs) She'll hit all your goddamn pressure points. (laughs) That's fucking great. She might even have a few different models. Yeah.
1: And I think just the reason I chose Virginia is that, uh, like, the presence of a woman like her in a team like this, it gave a voice to American women. It allowed them to start feel comfortable about having a sexuality that they were often previously told, like, that's not okay. And that's actually something really near and dear to my heart because it's such a normal thing. Sex is so normal. And for us to, like, shut out or be ashamed or, like, feel like we can't be a certain way because we have a fucking vagina, not okay.
0: I know. God, it's almost like there's this certain type of religious baggage that just really brings down that. It just really, for some reason, shames women's sexuality and their body autonomy. I just... God, I can't put my Uh, finger on it. I know. It's just, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, from their point of view, I shouldn't put my finger on it. (laughs) God, no, it's the devil's work.
1: (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, Oh, fuck. But yeah, I just thought that's, that's why she's my favorite feminist.
0: No, that's, that's cool. And I like that the sentiment that you ended on before we got to the masturbation thing. Because in part, that's what made me choose my artist this week. What? Yes. Yeah. Well, it's just the, the idea of being a woman present and active and working. And she also kind of did some sexy paintings, too.
1: Oh, snap.
0: It's a sexy episode. It is a sexy episode. And- Things get... Kind of not sexy towards the end, no. but that's life. Yeah, sorry, this one's a bit of a Debbie Downer. Oh, man, we tried, guys. But, we I mean, for the majority, it's, it's a good run, but, I mean, this woman in particular, there's going to be some flaws, and we get to see some of her insecurities that I haven't really come across in other individuals that I've covered so far. A little unique, but it's interesting. Ah, I'm going to be telling you about Christina Ramberg. American artist, not a sculptor, painter. That's number two. Yes. Two for two. We're going good right now. And uh, her work is considered part of the Chicago imagist movement of the 1960s. And I had no idea what that was. So we're going to get to learn together. Okay. What that means.
1: That sounds exciting.
0: <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, when it comes to art movements in Chicago and Chicago as a whole, I'm like, I don't actually really know that much about that city. We're, uh, we're East Coast girls. Hmm. Yeah. Now, okay, one thing that did really stand out doing research into Christina is that, unlike the other artists and scientists that we've covered, I actually came across some shit about her siblings.
1: What? Let's hear it. Yeah. I want to hear all about her siblings.
0: I know. So, she's got an older brother and two younger sisters. Didn't really get the scoop that much on her sisters, but we do find out some stuff about her brother and... I mean, that might have a bad ending, but But we know about them. Um, I know all their names. That's exciting. Milena, you're going to relate because Christina, she was born in 1946. Not that you were born in 1946. No. But she was born to a military family. Oh,
1: snap. Yeah. All right. She knows what it's like moving
0: abroad every three years.
1: To never pull shit out of your boxes ever. Yeah. Yeah,
0: pretty much. Now, her dad, Vernon, was an army colonel. He served in World War II and Vietnam. Uh, now, her mom, Norma, she wanted a, a career in music. But when they were kind of coming of age, that whole, like, Great Depression thing was going on. Uh, so it kind of put a damper on her education. She did go to small school, her mom, and ended up teaching piano after school to, like, pretty serious students. So her mom was able to, like, throw herself into her creative pursuits a little later on in life. Christina was the oldest child Her older brother, Charles, was born pretty routinely about two and a half years ahead of her. And then at the same amount of time, her younger sisters, Debbie and Jane, and being able to say all her siblings name right there is a big accomplishment. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, the the family traveled abroad. They were in Japan. Same. Yeah. They were in Yokohama. (gasps) Really? Yokohama? At the time. Part of the American, because this was like right after World War II. right? right like that right. shit is still fresh. They were there later. They were in Germany, and then they bounced around the U.S. and eventually they did settle down in Chicago. Okay. And by then, Christina was uh kind of in the later years of high school at that point. Now with Vernon on deployments, Norma, mom, she ran the fucking house. And later on, Christina compares her dad to the role Robert Duvall played in the movie The Great Santini. I've never seen it. I've never seen but, it. But uh, dad was kind of, a, you know, military man with some abusive tendencies. Oh no. Yeah, kind of created a little bit of friction. No details on what that did entail. But I mean, when he did come back, like finally from deployment, he did butt heads with Norma. I mean, mm-hmm. she was running the show, and this was also during a time when American women they were, you know, idolized to be these passive pretty housewives who nurture their children and kept the house spotless and here she was running the show and i think he wanted her to like kind of push her back into that passive domestic role nope yeah and she was like mm, not so much so a little bit of friction between the family but i mean vernon was pretty loving towards his kids christina said that you know when he'd come home from work he'd play with her and her sisters and they would play paper dolls together And growing up, you know, along with every artist that I've done, her parents were really supportive of her creativity. They know she wanted to be an artist, and they kind of tried pushing her towards being, like, a commercial artist. Uh And she was like, eh, yeah, no thanks. But, I mean, throughout her life, they were definitely very supportive of all the work, even if at certain points they were like, yeah, this is kind of fucking weird. But we love you. (laughs) We love you, honey. And between her parents, Christina was very close to her mom. And one thing that really influenced her early professional artwork was the fashion that she saw in her mom growing up. Okay. Yeah, and I mean, a little bit saucy, but we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, Christina grew up in an era where American women's fashion, it was all about, like, those, like, think torpedo bras.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: like the lift and the separate and, like, the girdles and high mm-hmm. heels. Yeah. And for Christina, that was a little hard to, you know, kind of blend in with because by the time she's in college, she's one. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. She's a little tall. Yeah. Finding clothes that fit her and looked good on her was really hard. hmm So because of this, Christina learned early on how to sew. Um, that way she can make her own clothes and kind of like, you know, tweak what was already out there.
1: hmm
0: No surprise, but selection was hard to come by in anything outside of the standard sizes, and that shit is still true today. Girl, who are you talking to? Have you seen this ass? I, I mean, things are, they're a lot better, but still really hard for her. I mean, again, we're in the 50s and 60s at this point. Her sister uh, recalled, like, Christina's struggle to try to find cute shoes. When Christina was in the 10th grade, she get this, like, special catalog for people with large feet. Hmm. And they look really cute and look really pretty. And when they came in, they looked like fucking shit. Oh, no. Yeah. And so, like, Christina would cry. Like, she just wanted pretty shoes like everyone else right like she just wanted to be that standard you know american teenage girl and just blend in with all her friends right and so like even from that really i mean i feel like everyone's really awkward at that age she kind of had this more like heightened self-conscious awareness about her body than i feel like you know other people have had to deal with you know sometimes you learn how to manage your excessively robust eyebrows and you know <laughs> things kind of you've reached a natural point where everyone's good but it's a little less hard when everyone's still staring at you because you're still like 6'2". And yeah. You're not going to un-be 6'2".
1: Nope. I would hug her.
0: Oh, you can't. She's dead. Sorry. Oh. I, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> this shit's kind of a little heavy towards the end. Oh, no. But we're going to enjoy it for what it is while we can. No, I mean, with her body, too. Her parents did worry that she had Marfan syndrome, well, how tall and lanky she was. Mm-hmm. And that's what Abraham Lincoln had. Oh. Yeah, so kind of like a hormonal issue that can, you know, affect the connection tissues and stuff. And now, I mean, she would joke about herself, you know, how cross-dressing men ordered shoes from the same place as her. Oh, God. You know, how people would stare and they would make remarks about her height. Kind of laugh it off, but I mean, again... She's someone who, from the start, a very acute sense of self. Right. Yeah. So like I mentioned, just like every artist I've covered so far, she was very creative as a kid.
1: hmm
0: You know, she'd always be drawing. And in high school, she had a really supportive teacher that really encouraged her. And during summer break, while still in high school, she took classes at the Art Institute of Chicago, where she earned her BFA and later her master's there in 1968, when she's 22, and then later in 1973, when she's 27. Okay. And School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Bit mouthy. Also mm. known as S A I C. I think U Arts just sounds much better. Much more fluid. Just straight off the tongue. Yeah. 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 Obviously University of the Arts is the best. <laughs> I mean, SAIC, that's, a, that's still today a pretty top, like one of the best art schools in the United States. Right. And it was here that Christina really made her home. And I think in part because she was a military kid and they were bouncing around so much that she just kind of settled in and was like, no, this is where I'm staying. And that's, I mean, that's where she spent decades teaching and living.
1: Girl, girl, who are you talking to?
0: I know, but not everyone who's listening.
1: No, I know. I know. It just like when, when you said that. like you. Yeah. When you said that, I was like, oh. I'm never leaving this place.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but that can also kind of have the opposite effect when you're like, oh my God, it's been three years. I need to get out of this place. Yeah.
1: Every once in a while, I get a little twinge. If I see somebody on the street or they recognize me, I suddenly am very uncomfortable and I feel like, shit, I've been here too long. Like people know me now. So you know the eatery that's attached to my building? Yeah. Okay. So this part of the city, you know where I'm at. I'm not going to triangulate where I'm at. It's, like, a crew of people that I know and I talk to when I go, like, buy beer, get food, whatever. On Sunday, boyfriend took me out to eat. Like, we went into a diner on, like, Maniunk. So you know how far those two places are.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're quite a few different, you know, a few neighborhoods apart from one another.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So going to the diner, I immediately see three people who work at the eatery who are working there, too.
0: I mean, shit. Those bills. So are not gonna pay themselves. This is so
1: cool. The diner and the eatery are owned by the same family. But oh, like really? I didn't expect to run into them at all. You just have great taste. That's good food man. Good Yeah, you food. just
0: appreciate what this family is providing. It's great.
1: I love them. All I'm saying though is that if I ran into these people the other side of the city, it was very weird. Very, very weird.
0: Anyway yeah, so Christina really made a home in Chicago and definitely at SAIC. And, I mean, honestly, she at the time that she was enrolled uh, and later teaching, she was really exposed to a very dynamic set of professors. Mm-hmm. This name's not going to mean anything to you, but we've got Helen Gardner. And for anyone that's taken an art history class, most likely you've read her textbook, Art Through the Ages. I think I have and, that textbook. and I Right? Don't- <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you're most likely not going to know her name, but, like. Nope for anyone who's taking an art history class, like, that is one of, still, the go-to interesting textbooks. Another professor is Ray Yoshida, a really influential teacher who did paintings and collages, and essentially he pushed his students to find inspiration, like, outside the traditional fine art kind of school environment vibe. Yeah. You know, go to a flea market, see what catches your eye, and, you know, pull from that. Pull from these weird objects. So, during the 1960s and 70s in Chicago, I that's the second largest city after New York City, I can Compared to New York, the creative scene was very different. In New York, we've got abstract expressionism. We've got pop art. We've got these big names like Jackson Pollock and Andy Warhol, which you'll definitely know. Yeah. Uh, do you know Mark Rothko at all?
1: If I see his work, I'm sure I would.
0: Yeah, those really big canvases with like – like they might be all blue and then there's like a square in it with like a slightly different colored blue.
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: I mean, God bless him. He made a shit ton of money off of it. So cheers to him. So we've got these big names like that. And they're all setting this artistic tone in these hyper artist-concentrated neighborhoods. uh, You know, kind of like what we covered a little bit with the episode covering Gear LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Lots of drugs going on. Lots of drinking. Very big party scene. Yeah. And I mean, also, you know, for those big names, a lot of money coming in, too. Right. Now, Chicago, things were a little different during the time. Artists are just living in, you know, these mixed working class neighborhoods. Not so much a heavy party scene. And the leading type of art, then, uh, was a collective of people called the Harry Who. And then later on, as the Chicago Imagist. And Christina's included with that movement. Mm-hmm. Now, essentially, they're just post-World War II SAIC grads that they worked representationally. But their, sh- their shit was weird. Hmm. It was definitely not traditional at all. No. They were inspired by surrealism, which, a little convenient, but, you know, at the time, Chicago museums were buying that shit up. Mm -hmm. We've got Art Brute, which we cover when we talk about Judy Scott, so outsider art. Right. Kind of disregarding the high art world expectations, and instead, people were doing these really disturbing, really grotesque, and, you know, sexually charged work, which, from your perspective, you could argue, having done... Virginia Johnson. <laughs> These just might have been latent sexual energies pent up and then finally expressed in a creative manner.
1: Just all over the
0: canvas. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, I mean, Christina. I it could go both ways. You could say she's very liberated and open. At the same time, you could say with her work, potentially a little repressed and a little bit. Her work was the way working through it, but we'll see. Now, I mean, the female body in her early work, that was where she pulled her inspiration. She focused on painting. She'd use acrylic on masonite. So basically, like a really smooth surface compared to like canvas. Uh You know, it's got a little texture to it. And she'd do these like finely rendered but like highly stylized works of women in their undergarments. Everyone essentially was like, Christina, what the fuck? 1960s and they're like this is kind of weird where that's weird from sorry do you live in the 1960s okay so by today's standards like yeah they're erotically charged and honestly they're pretty tame paintings but for the people that knew her and for the time it really threw them off and her sister was saying quoted as saying you know she surprised us i never felt there was something really dark at core about christina at all she just really wanted to explore whatever it was that intrigued her.
1: Um. Okay. I mean, I looked up these paintings. I looked up her name, and I'm I'm just yeah. I mean, they're good. I just to me like that's so weird that that's like dark to me.
0: I know. I know. I and it's one of those things that like the historical difference. Like, I mean, that totally makes an impact. Yeah. I mean, kind of going back to the research you were describing of, like, women fake orgasms? Like, yeah, no shit. Yeah. (laughs) And so it's, like, now, like, sexy women, like, in underwear. And everyone was, like, for the time, like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) I'm sorry, that was scandalous? Really? Honestly? Like, it's not not even, like, a nip slip (laughs) going on or anything. It's not
1: the 2003 Super Bowl.
0: Was it 2003? Yeah, like, please. So you can think of her paintings as kind of like snapshot of women, like in these very kind of dynamic poses being, you know, like a side view as someone's bending over, you know, a back view of the lower torso, mm-hmm. all done in a very limited color scheme, very heavy on black. Her line work and solid color, you know, really puts them more towards cartoony. Yeah, the content was very mature, but I mean, honestly, never explicit, at least not by today's standards at all.
1: No, they're pretty tame, guys.
0: They are. And researching her was kind of weird because, like, everyone's like, "Oh, these sexy feminist paintings and like, pro women's bodies and stuff." And I'm like, "All right, cool." And then you look at the work and you're like, "Oh, that's 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 what everyone's talking about." Like, they're not bad. No. But like that whole like you know kind of sensational element, you're like, "Oh, that's you really got to try to put yourself in the the mindset during the time, and it's yeah. it's hard because we've we, I mean we see so much more.
1: I think there's one of like. What is essentially ovaries, which I enjoy.
0: Yeah. Later on, her work kind of gets a little bit more weird to go into. But, I mean, for her early works and for her most well-known overall is this 1972 painting. Uh, she's 26, and it's called Waiting Lady. It's a side view of a woman bent over, her head's obscured by her hair. Her arms are bent, like, behind her back, like, lifted up. hmm And she's in, like, a strapless bra and... A corset and these panties and these thigh high stockings and then also these anti sweat pads. What? I didn't I didn't know that was a thing. What? Yeah, they're like these fancy little undergarments that like slip under your arm, like your your armpit. Interesting. Yeah, to absorb the sweat so you don't like sweat through, you know, your shirt or something. Oh. Okay. So so in her painting, like, the figure's wearing, like, these lacy anti-sweat pads, which don't sound sexy at all no. to describe.
1: But I see it. There they are.
0: Yeah. And when that painting came out, everyone was like, "Oh,
1: what?
0: Oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. And part of the fun for her work is that, like, the crop of the figure, you, you just get enough.
1: To know what you're looking at.
0: Yeah. But it leaves you really, like, trying to imagine what's going on. Like, for, with that painting, like, are her hands bound behind her? With the title, Is She Waiting on Someone? Is, She's
1: absolutely tied up and a
0: sub. I, there's so many things like implicit, but not actually really said in any of these works. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what makes them fun. And, you know, some of these concepts Christina was writing about in her diaries. And, of, of course, we'll we'll have images of this work up on the show notes as always, where you can see images of Christina's paintings and photos of Virginia. Can we have some pictures of the vagina photographs on the show notes, too?
1: I don't know if I'm going to get to it, but I will certainly try. All right.
0: We'll see what happens. Now, the funny thing is with Christina and, like, this very, like, sexually charged work is that, like, she was not comfortable with that aspect of it, like, at all. Wait. She didn't like to be sexually
1: charged? She
0: was doing these paintings. And, I mean, they obviously had this sexual energy to them. And if people talked about it, she was super uncomfortable. What? Yeah. I mean, maybe it's Virginia— It's your work. Could have given some insight into, you know, uh, kind of that dichotomy between what was going on. Because it, it, it was weird researching about her and it, the works has, like, this great energy and yet you kind of read more about her and her own feelings about her work. And you're just like, I would have never expected that. Like, no. I don't know. I feel like most artists, like. Yeah. I mean, we've covered artists who are like, yeah, my work's good. I love it. This is great. Like, I treat these like my babies, my creations. Yeah. Christina's a little different. and. I feel like maybe there is some anxiety and maybe there's some depression going on that in the materials that I came across about her, like, no one just really wanted to mention it. And there's not as much written on her as other artists that I've done. Gotcha. So I I feel like I'm missing a little bit of what was actually going on. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see what you have to think once I'm all done with my spiel. But I mean, like I said, she wasn't comfortable with the sexual connotations people took from her work, which actually, in, in hindsight... I don't know. It's a little weird because so if people would come up to her and like want to talk kink, she'd be like, oh, my God, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Like she rarely talked about the eroticism in her paintings. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, she was also included in Playboy.
1: Interesting.
0: So Playboy was started in Chicago and the art director pulled from a lot of the Chicago imagist movement artists, mm-hmm. including her, because with her style of art, it printed really well. Right. And so they paired it with some poems. And so she had, you know, a photograph of her in Playboy for the article.
1: Wait, was she like dressed up?
0: No, she wasn't sexy or anything. It was, I mean, it was like, I, I didn't come across a copy of it. But, you know, so they make it a little suggestive. Right. But it's nothing explicit. So here she is, you know, she kind of wants to distance herself from that. And at the same time, like being in Playboy.
1: Mm, interesting.
0: Yeah, things kind of fluctuate a little bit with her.
1: Just own your shit. Understand.
0: I think for her, a lot of the early work kind of pulled back from watching her mom get dressed, and that sound, sounds kind of creepy. Hmm. But she said, "quote I can remember sitting in my mother's room watching her getting dressed for public appearances, and I can remember being stunned by how it transformed her body, how it pushed up her breasts and slendered down her wrist, her waist. I think the paintings have a lot to do with this, from watching and realizing that a lot of these undergarments totally transform a woman's body." Watching my mother getting dressed, I used to think that this is what men want women to look like. And I thought it was fascinating. In some ways, I thought it was awful. Oh, shit. Yeah. So through the lens of, like, her observing
1: yeah, what can be done
0: to the woman's body, you're like, okay, all right. Like, I I can see that. Yeah. And that's when I'm like, okay, I can see why she gets uncomfortable with people sexualizing it because she just – It's like, yeah. She's reminiscing on, like, what, what fashion the push and pull of the body. Mm-hmm. Can do. So, I mean, this hyper awareness of the body, like it carried into her early work. I mean, she's someone who was really fixated with the precise way she paints and her singular focus on the female body. That was, you know, a lot of just what she did kind of in each work. And I mean, maybe it was a way of working through her own self consciousness, right? With her own kind of, you know, potential insecurities with her body and it's like awareness of it. I don't know. That's all speculative. Hmm. I'm not a sexologist. I wouldn't know. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a degree. I'm overqualified. Hey. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> she did what she lucky. could. <laughs> You're screwed. You're so screwed. I am so screwed. <sighs>
1: oh, goodness. If I had known this was a real thing, I would have done that instead.
0: I mean, it's not too late now. <laughs> you still can. You're still young.
1: Eh, ish.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, when she started showing her work, I mean, people were really receptive to it. I mean, like I mentioned, Playboy, I her work's printed in a, a print of December in 1972. Unprofessionally, professionally. Things were going really well. By the time she finished grad school at the age of 27, she'd been in 11 group shows, including the Whitney Biennial in New York City, which, you know, it's one of those really big deal art shows. Mm -hmm. She was selling work uh, while she was at school. She met a Philip Hansen, you know, fellow artist and painter. He worked completely different from her. Mm -hmm. His work was really loose and informal and very colorful. But they ended up getting married. They were really young, too. She was only 22 when they got married in 1968. yeah. And I wonder, too, if getting married early and, you know, having kids later on, if that kind of, I don't know, kind of rattled her a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because it it feels like she didn't have a lot of time between when she was out of high school and, like, in college to, like, be on her own.
1: Yeah, you really need
0: that. And I, I feel like later on with some of her insecurities, like, it might have been because, you know, she didn't have that earlier experience of just kind of standing on, standing on her own. But again, I'm not a doctor. What would I know?
1: Speculative.
0: Tisk tisk. I know, I know. Usually I stay away from that type of shit. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she's married, you know, she's teaching at SAIC. Um, and her and her husband, they're displaying work in art shows together. So they're in some really big, important shows together. And unlike New York City, where it was very much kind of like a man's world in the art scene, Chicago was cooler. It was much more open with women kind of being included in these, you know, these movements, these scenes. What was more important was the quality of the work itself rather than like who happens to be making it right so christina you know she's included in some some really big shows so i mean she's got her first solo show at a gallery in 1974 she's only 28 she's a year out of grad school and the entire time her work is being shown and sold there was a lot of apprehension on christina's part i mean gallery owners like really had to encourage her to show her work and later on she writes about her work saying quote my painting seems such a dull bore So few colors, so removed, I'm becoming so abstract and semi antidotal
1: Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. She hates her own shit. That's not good.
0: No, I have yet to come across this in all my research for artists.
1: Yeah, that's, that's like, she needed, she needed a friend.
0: Yeah, you just want to be like, you need a hug. Yep. Like, no, your work is, I mean, her work's good. She's got it. Like, and her work's selling and people want it in their galleries. Right. I don't know. Like, I don't know if she was dismissive of her own work, Right. seeing him then contrast to her husband's because right. his were so different. Right. I don't know if there was a little bit of imposter syndrome kind of going into the mix as well. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And in the 1970s, Christina's work really begins to shift beyond her initial, like, representational paintings of women. You know, she keeps the same attention to detail and surface, but the content really starts to loosen up. You know, there's more colors, they're still muted. But they're like slowly creeping into your paintings. And you know, the previous whole bodies she'd been depicting, uh-huh. you know, they're a little bit more abstracted. They're like segmented. She's like heavily stylizing the surface, you know, with the corsets that she had included in a lot of her work. You know, she's exploring the body as a container, more of like an urn. Uh-huh. And for her, she said, quote, I've always recognized two parallel strains in my work. One was the readable, recognizable as figure image, and the second one was a more abstract metaphorical image, often reading as a torso urn. Mm. So there's kind of like this push-pull going on. And I guess they're more abstract, these later paintings. And I think part of it, she had a collection of exquisite corpses from the Surrealists. And that was a game they'd play where someone would start a drawing of a figure and then like fold the paper over, and the next person would have to keep drawing more of the figure without really seeing, like, what the next part was. Okay. So she was a big collector of that. And I feel like that kind of crept into her work, too, of, like, taking the body, segmenting it. Like, how much of a body can it not look like while it still is obviously a body? Right. So she got definitely really kind of, you know, playful, challenging, like, being able to recognize, you know, the figure. So with that, you know, there's kind of like a Frankenstein aspect to it and along with you know some of the other collections she had one of them was the collection of dolls there are
1: always dolls
0: i know i know there's a picture up on the show notes and it's some of her dolls she had hundreds and some of these guys are like nailed to the wall like uh, yo and you know reading about her the entire time her family and friends were like she was so great she was so warm she was so loving she was so wholesome like she was just a normal child growing up like yeah totally not like a weirdo like i mean i was i'm still I am a weirdo but like people saying about me like no she was weird in like middle school high- like from a little age we knew she was a little off yeah not the case with christina oh my, my god was like, no she's sweet she's they describe her as fucking wholesome what yeah no she fucking had dolls. she
1: had some skeletons in her fucking closet that still have not been unearthed
0: need to be aired out a little bit, Jesus. So yeah, shells are a little creepy. Things are changing in the seventies. Yeah, I mean she's getting older. But one thing that might explain, you know, the whole shift in content thing, was motherhood, having some babies.
1: Yeah, I would feel disconnected from my body too after that.
0: Well, it's funny you should say that. Uh oh. So in the mid seventies, she had a miscarriage, and the baby was almost full term. Oh shit. Yeah. Oh. Now I feel yeah. awful. I mean I I mean that's already so hard to deal with, and even something today a lot of women go through and we still have a hard time just acknowledging that today. Yeah. But then to have the child be almost full term. Jesus Christ. I I mean, honestly at the time, it might have been like a birth abnormality that occurred later on that nowadays women in some states sorry, Alabama, you're a little bit fucked. In Georgia and Ohio and Kentucky. Um would have the option of doing a late term abortion for it. Jesus. Because the child is just not gonna be viable.
1: So she had to give birth to her stillborn
0: child? Uh yes. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. So I mean, already I think she at this point might have a little insecurity better work, a little bit of imposter syndrome, and then something like that happens. But in nineteen seventy six she's thirty and she has a son. But, I mean, when you hear about the miscarriage that she had, you know, that suddenly seeing all those fragmented pieces of, you know, of of torso and a figure, like, oh, that makes sense, too. Yeah. And she was also um, really fascinated with, like, medical illustrations, Mm -hmm. like vintage ones. Um, That medical interest kind of creeps into her titles. And the titles are also a little bit more heavy during this time. And we've got, like... Hermetic indecision and schizophrenic discovery and double hesitation. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I mean, things things kind of, they, they take a little bit of a turn. And again, like, hearing about all these little things, is it just a matter people didn't want to talk about her depression? You know, is that something, she, you know, she dealt with after giving birth, maybe? Like, I mean, that's something a lot of women go through, too. Yeah. I feel like it's a question of, like, what aren't we talking about with her?
1: Well, in that time period, nobody was mentally ill. Nobody talked about that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as her son got a little older, it was obvious like he's a little different. And today, I mean, the diagnosis would probably just be high functioning autism. But even in the 70s, early 80s, that depending on where you lived and what kind of, you know, medical professional care there was, it varied greatly whether or not what kind of care your child would get. Right. So that was another level of like uncertainty of like, okay, like how do I get the best for my son? Right. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, that was another thing people didn't want to talk about, you know, having special need kids then. So, yeah, sorry. Like I said, she gets a little heavy towards the end. Now, late 70s, and Christina's like, yeah, I don't want to do painting anymore. But at the time, I mean, she's head of the painting and drawing department at SIAC. But, like, she hates her job. Not that she hates her job. I mean, people said she was a great teacher. I mean, she really challenged her students to see past, like, the initial, like, function of an object and to incorporate it into an art and really pushed them creatively. Mm Uh, But overall, everyone was like, it's great. Like, this is such usually, like, a male-dominated world. And, like, there's a woman, a professional woman artist. Mm -hmm. That meant so much. And quilting had been something she'd done in the 70s. But, like, going into the 80s, that's what she really threw herself into. And that picked up on her sewing skills that, you know, she kind of had to learn when she was a a young girl. And – It was also around this time in the 80s when she's doing her quilt making that her marriage also comes to an end.
1: God damn it.
0: I know. But things weren't shitty like Virginia's shitty relationship. They stayed friends and they actually they lived really close by to one another and he was he was still really supportive.
1: So like Johnson and Masters, at the end of it, they were still fairly amicable. But I think she just wanted to remove herself from the situation as much as she could. Like they both wanted to. Yeah. They didn't like absolutely hate each other, but he, she probably should have hated him, if that
0: makes sense. No, it it totally sounds like she should have. Yeah. Yeah. Continue. Yeah, but no, they they were they were on good terms. You know, Christina threw herself into quilt making. She made a, you know a great friend, uh, Rebecca Shore, from that. You know, and she'd incorporate her art skills into it and you know she'd say that her quilts look like her paintings and her paintings would look like her her quilts and for her she said quote quilt making bailed me out at a time when i had reached a crisis with my major interest painting i was dissatisfied with everything about my painting and all my experiments were yielding nothing oh no yeah and i mean in a journal she writes quote fear of making boring repetitive work what i make is boring what i make is nothing new or original or surprising it is so fucking hard hearing that.
1: I just, oh wow, to be th- that critical of your work, to be that critical of yourself, like I mean, it's heartbreaking.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's one reason why I, like, reading about her, I was like, no, I want to, you know, I, I want to do an episode about her because I maybe mean, forget. I mean, mental health is still very much a thing, but nowadays, like. We have so many more opportunities and, like, networks for support and communities around us. I mean, even just, like, going online and finding, you know, those type of people who really get you from quilt makers across the globe. Like, it's so much easier these days to connect. And, I mean, think of her, like, in the 70s and 80s. Like, you're very much limited to just the immediate people around you and your social networks. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds like there was a point she just felt she was.
1: Like, nobody understood there her. There
0: wasn't that connection yeah. that she needed with the people around her. hmm uh-huh. But she did make that good friend, quilting that Rebecca. Now, 1988, Christina, she had a retrospective at the Renaissance Society at the University of Chicago. I mean, which is great. I mean, she was only 41 at the time. Oh, wow. And everyone, yeah, like, that's the thing. She's in her writings in her journals, She's so kind of depressive. But, like, professionally, things are still going really well for her art and still very well regarded. But, I mean, the, the excitement of the show was tempered. By the diagnosis of a fast-growing malignant brain tumor in her brother.
1: God damn it.
0: Older brother Charles. I mean, he grew up to be a prominent civil rights attorney in the South. Uh, he he was the president of a chapter of the ACLU. The, the previous president had been fucking shot and killed. He was assassinated. Oh, my God. Yeah, and because they're in the Deep South. Right. And Charles was like, no, I'm stepping up. Like, you're not going to fucking get us down. You're not going to stop us. Yeah, Like, he was fucking badass. You know, fighting racial discrimination had three kids of his own and a month after her show closed he died
1: oh my god
0: yeah understandably hit her a little hard
1: yeah yeah if suddenly i didn't have a brother i'd be done
0: yeah i mean i happen to really like your brother too so i feel the same way. <laughs> I feel the same way about you <laughs> like <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs>
1: You should see her face right now. She's like, her eye is twitching with the thought of losing any one of us, either one of us. She's
0: just like, nope, 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 nope. <laughs> I know. I know. God. And it's like, like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, geez, I really hope Melinda doesn't die before me. Like, is that selfish as a best friend? Like, can I die before you? Because I don't have to go through the emotional burden of dealing with your death. So if we could just get old and, like, I could, like, pass first, like, that would be great. Not not a chance in hell. Oh, I mean, we'll see. We'll see how things go down. <laughs> oh. Time will tell. Death is the only thing guaranteed in life. Oh, Jesus. But Christina was not in a good spot. You know, she had dealt with depression before, so when she started acting weird, people were like well your brother just fucking died from a brain tumor so no shit we'd all be acting a little weird in that situation too but people knew it was a little weirder than normal she was with her friend rebecca down in brazil for a quilt show they both had work in by the way she was showing her quilts and her friend rebecca was like shit's fucked up like we're in brazil it's summer and christina is wearing wool winter clothing seriously yeah. Like, she was all kinds of mixed up and, you know, she'd be unable to walk around and got her back to the States. She was in a hospital for observation, 1989, 43, and she's diagnosed with a degenerative neurological disease, Picks disease, which is a really rare, irreversible form of dementia. Whoa. Yeah.
1: Oh, my God.
0: And philip was there to help her i mean he he stepped in and he took over her legal and her financial and her you know personal affairs eventually he moved her into his house i mean they they live just like a block away from one another and you know eventually she did need to be put into a home once diagnosed those with Pick are they're given six to eight years to live and she died in 1995 at the age of 49
1: holy fuck
0: yeah and i mean one weird thing is that well not so weird Her family always wondered about their time in the immediate post-war Japan. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because at the time, it was Christine. She was little. It was her older brother. I mean, they were little, but. Yeah.
1: And then they both had like a a tumor. Yeah. A brain
0: tumor. Yeah. Both had degenerative neurological diseases. So. Yeah. And you know what? Especially once she had her son, she was very adamant against Anything nuclear. Any nuclear. Energy nuclear war.
1: Yeah.
0: Her and her husband, they protested against that a lot. Like
1: the miscarriage and then like her son having issues as well.
0: Well, I think, you know, seeing the devastation of the war, she just wanted, you know.
1: Well, no, I'm just saying a, like.
0: A better life. Yeah.
1: Those things probably happened because of the the exposure to it.
0: That too. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, compared to other artists that have been profiled, Christina, she was very introspective. She pulled from a lot of different visual reference points but it was really amalgamated into a very personal cohesive body of work mm-hmm. where she was really particular and, you know just worked a theme and with art movements like abstract expressionism and minimalism going on i mean christina and the other chicago artists they were really confrontational in, in depicting the figure and she was dealing invertently with sexuality and gender roles and you know like you mentioned with victoria or with virginia i mean 60s and 70s i have very fluid time for culturally like what's going on and so because of that, a lot of people can project a lot of different things onto her work so i mean overall her art really challenged kind of like these stuffy traditional 1940s 50s notions of you know what it means to be a woman how to be represented, how to be portrayed, that male gaze. And, I mean, her work's decades on. Uh, They're still relevant today. And like I mentioned, like, her presence as a teacher and being representative, like, really made a difference to her students. And there was one point I came across, and it said that she was uncomfortable with the label as a feminist. Mm. But with her, I think she said she was uncomfortable with feminists and, like, all the baggage of it. That
1: comes with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I tell people we run a feminist podcast, I get a lot of weird looks.
0: Oh, especially for men. Yeah. Yeah. Especially older guys, I find, huh, If I open with, like, oh, I run a history podcast, they're like, oh, yeah? And I'm like, oh, yeah, just wait for it. You're not going to like it.
1: Yeah, oh, my God. Surprise, gotcha. I have some older guy friends, and when I told them that, like, their reactions were, like, they, like, stopped doing what they were doing when I was telling them that. And I looked them in the eye and was like, so what do you think? <laughs>
0: I mean, I think we've got a pretty fun podcast. We've talked about like Nazis and like militant monks (laughs) and like what else? Glass eyeballs (laughs) at people being fucking struck by lightning. I know. I mean, we might we might brand ourselves as an action mystery podcast. That should be our next like asterisk on the bottom.
1: oh my god
0: i mean how like dude approved is that
1: <laughs> that's how we get more men listeners it's fine
0: yeah so yeah even though she was a little hesitant with the whole feminist label i mean her commitment to her work on the ex- examinations of gender and you know just what it took to be professional artist and she it was easy she didn't have to do it mm-hmm. like she could have you know kind of under the pressure but she didn't I mean so for me that's what makes her my favorite feminist this episode all right Milena if people want to hear more about the podcast and see the show notes with pictures of vaginas uh, where can they
1: go all right so we have a website it's called myfavoritefeminists.com. you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram under my favorite feminists you can listen to us on Spotify Stitcher TuneIn And iTunes. And if you're listening on iTunes, ladies and gentlemen, go ahead and rate us because it does help. And also in the comment section below, let us know if you could change up your career, be anything, anything, what would it be?
0: I'd be a surgeon. I'd be a fucking sexologist. You'd be a sexy surgeon sexologist
1: oh no no no! I, I wouldn't want to do surgery i know what surgery <laughs> looks like no thank you but no it would be on yeah. on my my card my business card it would be it would be my name and then under it would be fucking sexologist wait maybe not
0: yeah no i'm just i'm just imagining it like kind of towards the, t- the very top line and then underneath it like fucking sexologist no really it's a job no seriously i'm qualified
1: <laughs> <laughs> is that all on the business card
0: all in a business card yeah. <laughs> and you flip it over and it's just milena sexologist <laughs> like your email or something
1: Ah, uh, one day
0: maybe one day all right well until next time guys
1: oh until the- i feel like one more time
0: yeah i know that kind of went flat yeah all right well until next time guys Wait, I don't, I don't know. Why is this weird? All of a I sudden, I don't know.
1: You're thinking about it too hard. Yeah. Okay.
0: <laughs> That's Milan, <me>, <laughs> the sexologist. <laughs> uh, so until next time, guys. We'll see you then. Bye.